over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, hard to believe we are 31 books in... Maybe it's not hard for you to believe, hard for me to believe. Uh, We are in Obadiah, the shortest Old Testament book, 21 verses in one chapter. We have 12 other men in the Bible that are named Obadiah, but we have no indication um, that any of those are the prophet Obadiah who penned this brief letter. Um, we do know very little about him, and it's, uh, we know much less even about the dating of this little book, and it's a little bit of a puzzle. Uh, but we do know a lot of good information. We know the name is very interesting, that Obadiah means the servant of the Lord, or some will stretch it to a worshiper of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's Abad Yah. Yah is a truncation of Yahweh, which the, the pious Jews don't like us to use the word, but it's the idea of a servant or a worshiper of the Lord, of Yahweh. Um, there are a number of time schemes when this book was written, and again, as I've as stressed in the series, I'm not so much trying to get you to learn dates when things happened. That's a, a little bit of a history uh, data point that may or may not be helpful to some, but more, I think more of time spans. This book is very difficult to come up with that. So we basically have a list of views, and I'm just going to show you two very briefly. Uh, probably 840 B.C., and this regards the Edomites under the reign of Jehoram's uh, a monarchy, and then five 86 BC, and this would have been uh, during Jerusalem's uh, destruction by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So those two times kind of fit, and then there's a minority view, there's many others, that think it may have happened about the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And so we don't know a lot about the man, we don't know a lot about the time, we do know the message, it's very clear. Obadiah is prophesying from God that the punishment of Edom is going to come. It is going to be um, very difficult. Uh, Edom as a people group and the Edomites are mentioned 99 times in the Old Testament, more than any other enemy of Israel. And that was a new data point for me this week. Um, This is a picture of this group we're going to talk about in some detail, but the two parts of this book are the doom of Edom and the restoration of Israel. That's, That's the book in a nutshell. So then we need to step back and ask, why does Edom play so prominently in this little tiny record? And we know the history of this goes back to the ancient birthright feud in utero between the twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And that's in Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34, we have this tension. These two babies are going to be enemies. They're going to war with each other. Jacob, of course, is called the supplanter, the heel grabber. And so it's a comical piece of literature when they're being born, an arm comes out first, and they tie, this one's the firstborn. Because for Israel, for the Jew, uh, firstborn is important. The firstborn is the one that has the rights, the heir, the firstborn child, especially the firstborn son is the most important. So these two boys are born in this 
humorous fight for who's going to be first out of the womb. Uh, Jacob, as the supplanter, steals Esau, his brother's birthright, with a bowl, literally in Hebrew, of red stuff. Uh, the name Esau and Edom and red stuff are all etymologically related, the idea of a dark red color. Uh, when he's born, he's described in this way, as ruddy. David is also described in the same way. Whether they were red-haired or not, no one knows. But the wordplay is what's interesting, because Esau comes in, he's famished, his brother's cooking this red stuff, and he goes, give me some of that red stuff. You're not supposed to miss the word play. The red, asking for red stuff, and later Edom will be this red group of people, this reddish people, so to speak, uh, not literally, but symbolically. And uh, he trades his birthright. He despises it for a bowl of Dintymore beef stew, whatever it was. You know, It's worth that. He, he, he doesn't understand this birthright. But Jacob, and of course, there's a lot of conniving going on with the mom and so forth. But um, Edom then becomes a word that is related to the name Esau. Esau, as he despises his birthright, is a catastrophic result. And this begins in a humiliation, and so the brothers will be feuding from day one. And as this feud develops and they split, Esau leaves, he amasses power, he basically forces other people to be part of his tribe, if you will, and that becomes known as Edom and the Edomites of people group. And some, Esau becomes the Edomites, and Jacob becomes Israel. That's what you want to keep in mind. Esau is the Edomites, and Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, you may recall them meeting after many, many years, and the, they both had amassed an enormous amount of wealth and, and livestock and power and servants, and even that, uh, that meeting is very tense. In Numbers chapter 20, verses 18 and following, Edom refuses to let Israel just come through their territory with the threat of, of war and battle if they walk across their land, we might say. So the resentment, close to a thousand years, still simmers between the Edomites and Israel. Edom's action toward them is something God is going to judge. Uh, Saul fights the Edomites in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, David would later defeat the Edomites in an interesting set of battles, and he'll set up garrisons to uh, sort of protect the borders, if you will, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. And then later on, Solomon and the other kings from the divided kingdom, uh, Edom basically will, will gain and lose power, and it will make alliances with enemies to fight their own people. So this is where the tension of Edom remains. You know, it's hard for us in the West. Some of this is so removed. And when you look at the, the Arab countries and Islam and all these different factions, they have very good memories and they hold resentments for generations. Uh, part of that is because their history is very, very narrow and it's not talking about a lot of cultures. It's talking about one thing. And so it's easier to keep track of that. Um, Edom will rejoice in the overthrow of the Jews in 536. So, I mean, you're, you're as Christy gave a picture, your cousins, your relatives are being destroyed and they're cheering, good, you know, where, where these Israelites don't deserve to live. And this deep hatred is something God judges. Ezekiel chapter 35 is an interesting reminder of this. As you have rejoiced, Ezekiel 35, 15, over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation on Mount Seir and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord.
Later on, we are introduced to a group of people called the Nabataeans, and their lineage seems to be Arab uh, Arab people groups. And the Nabataeans are going to be uh, they're going to drive this group of, of, of Edomites into southern Judah. And so the, the land you look at east and west, and you come down to the beyond the Dead Sea, and as you go down to the so-called Fertile Crescent in Egypt, that southern area is going to be the occupation. It's going to dip into Jordan. Um, in Malachi chapter 1, 4, we read, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them wicked, call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. This is chilling stuff. Edom in a line with Esau is a perennial enemy of Israel, and of course God is going to judge them for that. Now there's a very small remnant of Edomites remaining, and they're integrated or absorbed by the Nabataeans. If you're a, a Next Generation fan, they, they're like the Borg. They have been assimilated. And they are now part of a group that becomes known as the Edomians. Um, if you know the movie Indiana Jones, uh, you saw the famous red relief in Petra. Some of you maybe have been there. Um, the, the, the side sidebar, just trivia. After that movie, it became a number one tourist destination and millions of people have gone there. It's kind of ridiculous. But nevertheless, this is where the Nabataeans occupied and this is where Edom and the remnants of Edomites were assimilated into this larger group of people that become known as the Edomians. Uh, some of you in your history might know the name John Hyrcanius. He was a Maccabean that would go in and force them to be circumcised to comply with Judaism. And uh, it's, it's, just a, it's a crazy, messy story, but there's a very small remnant of Esau's lineage that became the Enabites that fought internally, and then now they're relegated to the southern portion into what we'll call Petra or Jordan for the remaining years. Now, why do I tell you this long story? Even though their power is essentially gone, and they're, in a sense, almost wiped off the planet, there's a remnant. And there's a man named King Herod the Great who lives in Judea, 37 to 4 B.C., during Christ's time. He's a megalomaniac builder, without equal, among the most powerful people on the planet. If you've been to Greece and Turkey or Israel, you see these incredible things that Herod built. When we take trips to Israel, we take them to a place called the Herodium. It's a man-made mountain. People don't believe it. It's a man-made mountain. Uh, he, was, he was a crazy guy on the top of Masada. All the palaces he built around the world. He was an um, Edomite. So here's Herod the Great, who is related to Edom, what they call the Edomians at this time. And you've got to fast forward. Esau, Edomite, Jacob, Israel. You come all the way to the New Testament, and you've got this revolt against Rome that's going to be challenged by, initiated by Edomians. They're going to join with the Jews. In 70 AD this is obliterated by the general Titus, the Roman general Titus. And so in a sense you've got this ancient feudal struggle between these two twins born in the womb that are fighting for the firstborn rights and the final crescendo if you will is King Herod who's claiming himself to be king of the world is going to be in conflict with King Jesus. King Herod if you will comes through the line of Esau and Edom Jesus Christ, of course, is Jacob and the people of Israel. 
So it's an interesting thing to study. It's a lot of detail and weeds, but this is why, again, I encourage you, history is not your enemy, it's your friend. Sometimes we just have to dig a little bit. But um, the storyline picks up in a fascinating way when you look at this whole conflict from these two boys in the, in the womb. And these two people groups will fight until the end. And the last bastion, the last straw, the last remnant, they're fighting against the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. And of course they will lose. Walt Baker suggests that Obadiah is in miniature a profile of many of the prophetic writings. Obadiah speaks of God's impending judgment on the nations who harass his people and his nation Israel. There are lots of ways to break it. It's not that big of a, a book to analyze, but it, I like this break of the first 14 verses that talk about Edom's destruction and the last uh, six verses, Israel's restoration. So Edom's doom and Israel will be restored. It's tempting to hurry through a little book like this because you can read it in just a matter of moments, but there's so much laced in its history as well in its future. I want to look at a number of notable themes from the book. Let's look at four of them. The first one is that God is going to judge the proud. God is going to judge the proud. Obadiah 1, the first four verses, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. It's a frequent theme in Scripture. I mean, in the, the imagery, he's, you're in a high place in, in antiquity. And even in today, in conventional warfare, high ground is what you want. You control the high ground, you control what you see, what's coming your way. If you go to the northern part of the country of Israel, there's a high area near the Golan. You want that high area. You want to be able to put technology and eyes on what's going on below. It's, it's a defensive posture. It's great to have the high ground. God's saying, you go to the high ground, the clefts, the strongholds, I'm going to pull you down. It doesn't matter what you do to build yourself up in your pride and your hubris, I'm going to bring you down. And that theme of pride isn't just national groups that want to destroy other people groups. We see in Proverbs 16.5, a very familiar verse, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. This isn't a small, trivial thing. James writes, quoting a number of passages, James 4, verse 6, but he gives greater grace, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there are a number of references, Psalm 138, Proverbs 3, that this is where James is pulling this quote from. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's no place for pride. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing how we want to teach our children to be proud of their schoolwork, to be proud of their accomplishments, to be proud of their athletics, to be proud of doing hard work. And there's this fine balance between human pride and what I would call a good pride. Uh, pride in God using you, pride in doing your best, pride in representing Christ well. And that's a fine line. The I, me, my doctrine is very subtle and very seductive. 
And I don't know about you, but I was raised in a home where the word pride was, I mean, it was, if you sounded arrogant or prideful, it, the boom came down pretty quick. Don't get the big head was kind of the message. Who do you think you are? You don't deserve anything. And that, that can be overstated without question. Um, I remember early in my Christian life, I'm rising Romans chapter 12, and where Paul says, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but have sober, the King's English, sound judgment. Why? Because God has allotted you a measure of faith. Some people may have uh, more scale, we say. We like that word a lot. Some people may have more power. They may have more money, more success. Uh, that's, not the, that's not the measurement. Paul says, don't think, and I, and I wish he put in parentheses, don't think more highly than yourselves and don't think more lowly. Because many people are guilt and shame oriented folks and they feel that they underperform, they're always worried about low self-esteem, all this language. Uh, you can have a sober view of who God made you and have a healthy view of who you are. Not proud, not braggart, nor low self-esteem and, self, and self-deprecating. There's a balance that God says, have a sober judgment. So, but there's no place for proud pride and God will judge it. And it's an area perhaps most people in the Christian community are going to deal with at certain times. You, you know when your pride bubbles up when you're in a meeting or in a group and somebody else is wrong. Because you feel it. You feel it coming up through your chest, the back of your neck, you feel it somewhere. Oh, they're wrong and I'm right. And that's when we're down the path before we know it. No place for pride in the Christian life. Secondly, God will judge Israel's enemies. In Obadiah verse 10, because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. This language is really black and white. It's very, it's not a lot of, you know, maybe I'll be, I'll annihilate you, it'll be okay, no big deal. I'll, I'll no. You're going to be covered with shame and cut off. The idea of shame in the, in the Eastern mindset is very difficult for the Westerners to comprehend. To lose honor, to lose, your, you know, to lose face, as some Asian cultures talk about it, the shame on you, you lose your position, you lose your place, you lose respect. And so more akin to that in the Old Testament, to be covered with shame. What a horrible metaphor. You're not going to be ashamed. It's going to cover you over for what you have done, and you'll be cut off. It's difficult to accept um, sometimes when we read the Bible and God judges other people and judges sin so harshly, and we think, oh, isn't he loving, and isn't he kind, and that's Old Testament, and that doesn't apply today. Um, God is long-suffering with people, period. As I've said many times before, the question isn't why is he merciful and gracious uh, to some? The question is why is he merciful and gracious to any? We all deserve hell. There's, all of us are arrogant, money, sex, and power, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. All of us fall into those traps. We're born in sin. We're born depraved people. You know, I know when your little infant is born, he or she is innocent without sin. Wait a few months. Uh, we are born with a self-propensity that reveals our sin nature. And um, we don't want to be judged. And then when we think we're in the clear, we can't understand other people being judged. God's long-suffering, and he will bring a judgment. 
to Israel's enemy. Thirdly, God's judgment is sure. In this short book, 12 times we see the word day. Interesting. I'm looking for repetitions. I encourage you when you read, look for repetitions, for restatements, for themes that keep occurring. You've got 21 verses and 12 times he uses the word day. It points to a number of different things, but in some it's going to talk about the day of the Lord. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. And then verse 18 then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Hard words. Hard words. But his judgment is sure. And then fourthly, let's think about God will bless his people. And let me read the last two verses of the little chapter. And the exiles of the host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Seraphod will possess the cities of the Negev, the southern area. The deliverers will ascend to Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The enemies of the Lord are going to be defeated. The Lord's kingdom will be established. I find it striking that the last phrase of the book is mentioning the kingdom. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. And this opened a rabbit hole for me this week. So why does Obadiah in this little 21 prophetic oracle, if you want to call it that, with a notation that in the end, Edom is going to be destroyed, Israel is going to be restored, and there's a kingdom the book is ending on. Let's talk about the kingdom of God. It's a big subject and I just want to give you some highlights and overviews. It's a good time to think about that. You've probably heard various opinions, various takes on what the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom of heaven is. I want to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I've told you many times in this setting and others, 2 Samuel 7 is an area you ought to be familiar with. In my Bible, it's, there's a box around it. There's notes in the margin because this is notable in verses 12 to 16. In no uncertain terms, David is going to have an eternal kingdom. You know the backstory. David wants to build a house for the Lord, a worship complex, and God says, no. Your son Solomon's after you will build it. So God allows David to build his home. Doesn't stop David, though. He becomes the uh, requisitions officer to get all the materials and all that's going to be needed for his son to build the temple complex. So think about that. I want to build, let's just call it, a place for God's kingdom. God says, no. Okay, I'll do the next best thing. I'll get everything needed to build this kingdom and this place of worship, and then his son's going to build it. Compared to the nations around them, that had palaces and temples and complexes and multiple gods, Israel had none of those. And so David is saying, our people need to know who Yahweh is and we need to worship Yahweh the way he designed, the way he intended, and the place where he puts his name. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, really the first 17 verses, are a passage I've encouraged you to look at and mark in your Bible. Now don't miss the obvious. This is a worship complex. A king 
needs a place to be worshipped is what we're seeing here. And of course the king being Yahweh Elohim, not David. It's going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to be on Mount Moriah. It's going to be where Abraham uh, sacrificed his, almost sacrificed his son. It's going to, a lot of transactions occur in this area and it's where the temple complex, the Herodian Plaza is today. Somewhere under that mountain is the location where all this occurred. Not only Abraham's offering of Isaac, but the first temple that Solomon builds and subsequent construction projects. Um, God knows man's heart. He knows man's future. He knew when uh, Solomon built this temple complex what was going to happen in the future. But he still allows them. It's a place where he puts his name. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to have intertribal warfare. All that's going to go on in their history. But God has an unconditional covenant to David that someone is going to be on that throne forever. 2 Samuel 7 verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the house is going to be about Yahweh Elohim, but the king who's going to sit on that for the, for the immediate future is going to be David and then his lineage. Verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a sidebar comment. Most English translations are now dropping the divine pronoun. Uh, they don't use a capital Y for you or a capital H for him or your. And, and I, I really dislike that. Another reason I kind of stuck with the NASB many, but that's one reason. Uh, because sometimes it's hard to know who the referent is. Who's he talking about? And this is a very key passage. So in verse 16, you notice your house is capitalized, your kingdom shall endure before me, but your throne, talking about David's, not God's. And you can't, you can't figure that out if you don't have the capital letters. It's just, so I would just say, if you like your Bible, fine. It's just good sometimes when you get lost in that pronoun. Look at a NASB, especially the Proverbs, wisdom literature, where it gets really complicated. Who's he talking about here? Psalms are really difficult to know sometimes who the you, the your, the he, the him referent is. And if I don't have that capital letter, I've got to do homework. So just a little tip. All right, so we've got this kingdom. Let's come back. I know I've got you lost in the weeds. This, this is a kingdom that God has established, a covenant promise with David that can't be broken. All these things happen. Factions, wars, the temple's destroyed, the kingdom is divided, Israel's displaced, they go into captivity a number of times. It's a horrible mess. And then we have the so-called birth announcement. Gabriel shows up and meets the young Mary. He appears to her, and I think most of, maybe not most of us, but this is easy to miss because we think of the birth narrative automatically. But listen to what Gabriel says to the young woman in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, which we always stop and say, why? Because everybody who sees the angel is terrified. And don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Let me pa part, stop, pause just a minute there. Mary wasn't a better Jewish woman than anybody else. It wasn't like God was looking, let me find a really great, righteous, pious Jewish girl. Ah, she's the best one. It's the same with Noah. Noah found favor. God chooses a person. Now, does that, does that preclude that she was a terrible person? No. But he didn't pick her because she was better than anybody else. He picked her because of his divine right as a sovereign. And he's acknowledging, the angel is saying, hail favored one. God's picked you. And we continue, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And look, his kingdom will have no end. I don't know if you've seen the birth narrative. It's a kingdom narrative. But Messiah's coming, and Gabriel's point is, this is the continuation of the Davidic covenant God made to David that someone would always be on the throne of David for eternity. And Gabriel's announcement to this young, pious Jewish girl is, you're going to bear a king. I think she probably, this is in pencil, no way to prove it, I think she probably heard the king aspect more than the savior aspect. Deliver his people was a, a, polit- a geopolitical issue. You're going to deliver us from the oppression of our enemies, which they always had. It's a very nuanced observation, but I think you've got to look at what he's saying. The throne of his father David. The lineage is connected back to Jesus Christ is of the lineage of David. And he, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob. Edom is going to be destroyed. Jacob is going to be restored over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Obadiah prophesies the destruction of Edom and the restoration of Israel, ultimately, of course. Obadiah prophesies the exiles are going to return from, from, from territories, from cities, and ultimately Mount Zion. And so we see all these people coming to where the kingdom is established. Michael Van Lanningham writes a wonderful summary statement of this passage. It is a literal geopolitical kingdom in which there was a ruling king replete with authority that is exercised over a literal people and a literal land. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, not because it exists only in heaven, but because it will come to earth from heaven. That's a $25 paragraph. That is a great paragraph. To understand the kingdom of God has to come to men. Men can't get to the kingdom of God. We can't be good enough to get to God. God was good enough to send Christ to us. And this whole notion of getting back to the garden is, is, is laced with all sorts of misinformation. But the idea for the only way for God to restore this thing is for Christ to come and be that literal king. And of course we know the story too well. He's the prophet, priest, and king. And he'll also be the sacrifice because no one else could make sufficiency of the sacrifice but Jesus Christ. As I've said many times, God is as good as His Word, and His Word is good. God is as true as His Word, and His Word is true. God will deal with the wicked, and He will save the righteous. That is so unpopular in Western Christianity today. This notion that it's all going to be happily ever after, mercy will reign, God would never, and I warn you, I warn you, I encourage you, I admonish you, when anyone says, I can never believe in a God who, they've just made God in their own image. I can never believe in a God who allows, I can never believe in a God who discriminates, I can never believe, they've just made their own image. They've concocted a construct. This is how a God should be. All that is revealing is how little they know of the God of Scripture. I don't mean to be unkind. It just reveals what they don't know. And that falls to us, to be learners and students and disciples of His Word and to help other people. And the horizontal view of life is our ultimate preoccupation, is it not? I, me, my. I don't know what went through your mind when you woke up this morning, but it was probably, in my world, it's coffee. 
At first it's hot shower and getting the, the bad backs loosened up and moving, and then it's a shower shave, put some clothes on, and it's the French press as soon as I can get there. I mean, that's my objective in life. And, uh, and Cindy and I have our French press coffee. She's already had three or four cups by the time I get her French press, but that's a different story. I, I mean, I can't wait for that. And then I sit in my chair in my little office and do my devotions, do my study, and that's the sweetest time of my life. Oxygen and the word of uh, the word of God is my oxygen, and caffeine is my supplement. You know, caffeine is God's second greatest gift to mankind. <laughs> Air conditioning is the third. Um, so I get up in the morning, and you know what happens to me, just like it does to you. What I got going on today? If you open your calendar, your outlook, you're toast. Open your phone, toast which is why I discourage using technology for these things, just because, not that it's bad, certainly it's convenient, it's wonderful, I love it, I love it, I love it, I'm a tech addict, but if I get in the technology, I'm gone. If I just got the book and a pencil and a pen and a cup of co- a coffee, I'm ready. And I'm not distracted as much. I was interviewed by someone a while back and he wanted to know how I organized my desk and my day, which is kind of a weird question, but anyway. Um, I had three by five cards in my drawer and I put them on the table, and I take a pen out, and when that distraction comes to my mind, I write it down, and I physically put my hand on the card and move it. Because there's ADHD, ADAD, ODOD, whatever I am, um, I gotta physically do that and push it over here, or it has a life of its own. Because the I, me, my of my world consumes his, him, you. Because why? I'm thinking about my coffee, my lunch, my appointment, my day, my calendar, my week, what do I have going on? And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm worried, I'm concerned. Concerned is the Christian cool word for being worried, that's all it is. We're, it's, just, it's still bad to be worried uh, about the stuff of life. Relationships, job, money, sex, power, conflicts, children, grandchildren, house, got repairs to do, got, I got a whole bunch of patients to go see, I got clients to see, I'm short, I got to do a budget. How many people love doing budgets? Don't even raise your hands, God bless you. Different creature altogether. Uh, all these distractions come whirling in. If you still got kids and you're homeschooling or getting them on the bus or doing homework or projects, the I, me, my is just, you're just flat. You're flat with the stuff of life. How often do we think about the kingdom of God? Please don't hear me guilt or shame or heaping on your head. I'm I'm asking the question with you. What does it take for me to stop and say the I, me, my of life is very short-lived? And the you, your, his, and his eternal kingdom is eternal. We're worried about this week worried about the budget, worried about the bills, worried about fill in the blank. And he's telling Edom and Israel, Edom's had their success in destroying and harassing Israel. At the end of this thing, it won't matter because it's my kingdom. It's my kingdom. Not theirs, not yours. So with all the distractions that swirl around in your head and my head, you know, just it, to me, it's almost like a recalibration. I just have to stop, and I say, God, will you forgive me? Lord, will you forgive me? I'm so self-preoccupied, which goes back to pride. It's all about I, me, my. Help me. And I think he likes those prayers. I can't speak for him, but I think he likes those prayers. 
I think he loves it when his children say, I need help. I am distracted. I am discouraged. I am too self-focused. I am preoccupied by filling the blank. And I need to be a little more occupied with you. And that your kingdom is eternal. It cannot be stopped. It is in some ways weak to understand at play even now. We just don't get to see it. If you and I believed that, I think we'd be a lot happier. Not that happiness is the objective, but I think if you and I understood that His kingdom is eternal and is going to reign and will not be stopped, I think we could all take a spiritual, <sighs> I don't have to worry quite as much. I can re- Even when I mean my goes sideways, I can rest in Him. And that's why kingdom theology is helpful. Because we weren't meant for this kingdom. We are meant for another kingdom. You weren't meant to stay here. You're, you're an otherworldly person. You're a sojourner. You're a pilgrim. You're traveling. And bad things happen to travelers. We get mugged. We get accosted. We get in trouble. We do things out of town we shouldn't do. This earth is not our home. There's a new kingdom awaiting us. And even the angel Gabriel told the little 16-year-old Mary, he's going to bring a kingdom that reigns forever. And I find it striking that with the doom of Edom and the destruction that Obadiah talks about, he crescendos it with the kingdom of the Lord. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. 